in my last talk, I spoke of the fall. And I said that today we would go into the consequences the fall has had in the relationship between God and his creatures, man and woman, between Adam and Eve and their descendants, and also with regard to the material world. But before I come to this, I would like to go back for a moment to what I said or wanted to say about the fall. First of all, we must realize I have already mentioned it, but I want to insist on it, that Adam and Eve, man in the general sense of the word, the human being, was not, has not, from the beginning, the full stature to which it was called. The human being created by God, was called to reach what St. Paul calls the full measure of the stature of Christ. And it is only in Christ that we can see the full stature of the human being realized and revealed to us. When they fell, Adam and Eve were, and this is patristic, same teaching, were in a state of innocence and not yet in the same in the state of sanctity of holiness. They were, as it were, pure of stain, and yet they had to develop, to grow into the fullness of their vocation. And the fall was a fall of two beings which were not yet fulfilled. It was two beings that were still in process of growing into the measure that was their vocation. This is important because what happened to them was not a betrayal of humanity who would have reached its full stature, its full maturity, and had wickedly or mistakenly chosen to pass by God and to immerse itself in the created world, to know it as it were from inside and not as a revelation from God, not to see the world by looking into the depths of the divine wisdom, but see all the created world by human observation. I mentioned that in the garden there were two trees that are obviously symbols as much as the garden itself is, is a symbol. The one was acquiring the fullness of knowledge by communing with God and in God discovering his own depth and holiness and beauty and in him at the same time discover oneself, one's companion and the created world.
and there was a tree of knowledge that was is an image to say there is another way which could have been chosen an attempt at knowing all the created apart from God by immersing oneself into what one saw and what one could experience of it. And at that point, we are told that Satan, and the word means the adversary, came into their presence and regarded them by a lie. He did not tell them rebel against God. He told them that God had called them to the full knowledge of themselves and the created world and that they could acquire it directly, not by growing into communion with God, but by acquiring this knowledge themselves. And he added that by doing this, they will be the equals of God, because God knows and they would know. And they could pass him by and acquire the fullness of this knowledge. <coughs> a knowledge that was no longer communion with God, but immersion, a false communion, a communal immersion into the created. A created that was still unfulfilled, that was in the making, that was unfolding in beauty, in depth, in perfection, but was still not complete. And in doing this, the adversary <coughs> did try to do for them, or rather against them, what had happened to himself. If you remember one of the talks I gave you, the angels fell because at a certain moment they felt they were fulfilled. They were of a brilliance, of a splendor, of a beauty that was such that they could desire nothing more. And they forgot, as it were, or they turned away from the thought that all that was possible because they were in communion with God. That they were sharers of his life, of his grace. And they fell because the light that was in them was God's light. And the moment they wanted to appropriate this light to themselves and say, this is mine, and it is me who discovered that it was neither theirs nor them. And darkness came. And Satan suggested exactly the same to Adam and Eve. I'll take all the fruits of the tree of knowledge and you will become what God is knowing everything Adam and Eve were still in their if I may use this word in their infancy they were still immature they were pure without a stain without any evil in them, but they could lend an ear to the tempter 
because we tend to add to what you said, because this is what God wants of you, implying perhaps, or saying, that he expects from them the initiative, the creativeness which such an action would imply. And they fell on the same road as he had told, but not as desperately and as definitively, although we will come back to this word in definitive later. I mean, I said that the beginning of all evil was the lie. He's a liar by excellence, and the murderer, the first murderer, and that a lie is always a murderer. In greater terms or in smaller. But to lie means that we create for others and indeed we participate in this creation by being entangled in it, we create for others a world of unreality. <coughs> and one cannot survive in unreality. One can live and grow and attain one's full stature only in the total reality of God. The moment we introduce an eye, <coughs> we create a false world. I would like to give you an image of it. If you stand on the shores of a lake, at the moment when the waters are not touched by the breeze, you can see the reflection of the banks, of the trees, or the bushes, or any object, including yourself, that is on these banks. But the moment the wind begins to blow, the water become, comes into motion, and all that was reflected with such clarity, identical to what it was in reality, becomes blurred. This is what a lie does. And this is the world which Satan wanted to create for men, mankind, to perish in it. After my talk, I got a note to the effect that can one say that all lie is evil? On their white lies, or lies for the good. In, it, in essence, a lie is always evil in the sense that it is like a cobweb destined to catch and therefore to kill someone, beast or man. There are situations in which we think and others say rightly that disguising the truth, that lying to use the word in all this crudity, is the right thing to do. The example given by my correspondent <coughs> is that of the time of resistance in France during the German occupation. If you want to fight, you had on occasion to lie, because you could not tell the truth, or to be silent at a tremendous cost. And when I read this note, I remember one or two things which I want to relate to you. 
for years when I was a doctor, I looked after a young woman who at the age of 16 or 17 had joined the resistance movement. She and seven of her young companions went forth <coughs> They were interrogated and they all refused to speak and to try to break them they said this girl called Genevieve who should be remembered they placed this girl on a chair died <coughs> and then for days on end they tortured in her presence one after the other, her seven friends <coughs> and companions. They tortured them hour after hour, telling her that if she speaks, they will be free. They had asked her not to speak, and she did not speak. She saw them tortured unto death, for days on end, and after that, when Paris was free, and she was free also, she had to be treated for years of what had happened. She did not lie, neither did they, but the cost was immeasurable. And I remember also another occasion of a man who believed in mechanical truth, as it were, in telling the truth as it is whatever the result. He lived in the mountainous part of France, the Auvergne, and one day, a man came running along the path that passed his farm and asked him in what direction he could go in order to hide because he was pursued by a squad of the German soldiery. The man looked at him and said, you need not run anywhere. I will hide you. And so he did. And after a while, the soldiers arrived and began to ask him questions. He answered truthfully that no one had run past the house. The commanding officer became suspicious of the way he answered. And he asked him point blank, have you hidden this man in your house? And this man answered, yes, I have. <coughs> the man was found, beaten, and dragged away. And as he was going away, or being dragged away, he turned to the man who could have been his savior, and said, what have you done? And the other answered, I'm a Christian. I never die. I leave the story at this point for you to reflect. One can keep silent. And the time silence is, can be a betrayal. One can tell a lie. But one must be aware that even if this lie is aimed at doing what we imagine to be the good, it is a way of ensnaring someone in the distorted world in which we live. It may at times be right, but in the absolute 
it is evil. Because it creates a non-existing situation in which someone or a group of people can only perish. So that Satan created for Adam and Eve a world of unreality, <coughs> a world that did not exist. He offered them the knowledge that belonged to God. Without telling them that this knowledge they could never acquire. And instead of discovering the world by communing with the wisdom, the vision, the love, the creativeness of God, they began to discover it by immersing themselves in its materiality. <clears throat> and in doing so, they lost contact, the contact of communion and love with God. All that remained the object of his love, but they no longer could speak of theirs. And God became not the one who is longed for, the one with whom one communes and with whom one wishes to be inseparable, the one from whom one wishes to learn everything he will choose to impart and steal no knowledge which is not a gift of his. They saw in him another person, someone else. On the one hand, the grace of God, the Spirit of God, germinally, incipiently, lived in them. And in that sense, they still communed with God. And this communion has never ceased, however far we have fallen away from it. On the other hand, it was no longer the complete trustful abandonment into his hands, into his wisdom, into his love. And when God called them, they hid. Because they were already aware that they had lost something that made them Make it possible, made it possible for them to face him. They had listened to the enemy, they had followed his advice, they had immersed themselves in materiality, and God was outside, as it were. Before that, he was holiness. He was beauty. He was love. He was the wonder of their life. Their life had no other meaning than this communion with him and discovery in him of themselves and of the created world. Now, they saw him as he also was, he always was, the Holy One, but not the Holy One before whom one stands in adoration, in love, towards whom one is moved, but someone who is beyond them. Somehow, so holy, so perfect, so great, 
that there is no access to him. Later, this attitude developed among people. And there are two occasions in the Old Testament when righteous men, having had a perception of God, which they had never had, exclaimed, I must die. I have met God face to face. Standing face to face with God was their life. And now they were afraid of it. And then this painful dialogue between God and man. Why are you hiding? I am naked and I am ashamed. How do you know the woman whom you have given me has given me to eat of the apple? Well, there is no apple in the story, but of the fruit of knowledge. So ultimately, they accuse God himself of being responsible for their falling away from the perfect harmony of grace and love. Had they at that moment said to God, this is what has happened. We were foolish enough to believe the tempter Heal us. Pour your grace upon us. We are not worthy of your love, but we cannot live with anything else. They could have been restored, but they did not do it. They accused one another and ultimately God. And this raises a question which is still in the minds of millions of people, Christian and not Christian. What is God's responsibility for all the evil of the world, for all the, all the horror that we find in this created world? We will come back to certain points of it, but we are aware that every creature preys on another creature, that humans kill humans, that cruelty is abroad, that horror masquerades under the name of justice, faithfulness towards country, towards friends. Is it enough to say that God knew and that his answer was the incarnation of the only begotten Son and that his answer was the complete participation, his own part complete participation in the tragedy of the world, including death. One can say that at times, when there is no tragedy that hits us directly. But what are the moments when tragedy is there in all its horror and hits us at the heart. When we read in history of wars and massacres, it's far away from us. When we hear 
of recent wars, <coughs> tortured, tortured chambers, concentration camps. It is not far from us, but it is outside of our experience. But what do we say when it hits us at the core of our being? I remember a conversation I had many years ago with a Russian woman. Her grandson of 11 had died. And she said to me, I can't believe in God anymore. I prayed to God that this child may be healed of his illness, saved and lived. And he has remained silent, indifferent to the agony of the child, the cry of our prayers, the suffering of the parents. And I said to her, but you never reacted that way when during the First World War, the Second World War, the Revolution, or events in which you had been involved. The occupation of France, the knowledge of what was going on, and the death of millions of children. You know about it all. Did it not shake your faith? And she looked at me and said, all these children were not my grandson. It is only when tragedy is perceived so directly, pierces our own heart, that we can understand what it is. And then what is the answer? Is, the answer? is it enough to say that God has taken Is it enough to say that God has taken upon himself all the consequences of the fall of angels and the betrayal of men by becoming men, sharing our human destiny, sharing the horror or the loss of God when he cried, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The loss of God, in a way, in an infinitely more tragic sense, repeat the loss which was endured by Adam and Eve at that moment. Is it enough? It is atrocious to say that millions of people say, no, it's not enough. What about all those who have gone through tragedy and suffered? What answer can we give? We can read in the scripture an answer. And we can commune with what is conveyed to us in this particular passage of the scriptures only if we grow to the measure, to the stature of the ones who wrote. In the book of Revelation we are told that at the end of time the sufferers, the martyrs of the earth from the very beginning of history will stand before God and say, Lord, you have been right 
in all your ways. It will be the cry of people who will have gone through what the scripture calls the great tribulation, the horror of history in all its fullness. Can we already know, however incipiently, participate in this experience of death? Can we trust God in such a way as to say, I believe, Lord, that a moment will come when I also, however blind I am, will stand before thee and say, Lord, you were right in all your ways. That all the suffering of the earth, all the tragedy of the created world that involves not only mankind, but in, involves all things made by God will prove redeemed. <coughs> but this requires from each of us and from all of us because we stand only united, sharing, supporting one another. Only then can we say such words? And I remember a French theologian writing that at the last judgment it is only the victims that will be able to save from damnation their tormentors. Because unless the victim forgives, God cannot do it against them. He cannot say, you suffer and I forgive. And it is only in this tragic communion for the victims with the divine victim that forgiveness can be granted. But do we ever see any such thing happening around us? I remember a man who had been a soldier in the First World War in the Russian army. He had lost an arm, he badly wounded, lived in France with his wife and two children, who were teenagers when the war came. He worked with Mother Maria Skarzova, And when she was arrested and sent to concentration camp, together with her son, he also was sent to camp. Four years he spent there. He came back and I met him in the street. And it was a wonderful encounter because I have always loved and admired him. And I said to him, what have you brought back from the years in concentration camp? And his answer was, agony of mind. 
I knew how unshakable his fate had always been. And I said to him, do you mean that you have lost your faith? And he said, no. But as long as I was in camp, the object of all the cruelty and all the suffering that could be forced upon us, I could at every moment say, Lord, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. And I knew that God had to hear my prayer because it was born in the fire and the agony of suffering, both physical and mental. But now I am free. And I think of these men who knowingly, ferociously, tormented us year after year, day and night, unto death for many, unto the crippling of many souls. And when I turn to God, praying for them, what can I say? They may not have repented of their evil ways. And when I ask God to forgive them, doesn't he say to me, it's easy for you to say such words now. Why should I receive your prayer? You are not suffering. Others do. This is an example of what probably will be the redemption of the world. Men, women, children, standing before God, face to face with those who had created a hell for them on earth and being asked, can you forgive? And their answer must be, yes, because if they do not forgive, God himself cannot forgive. But at the same time, if they do not forgive, they are not good God. They must still mature, still change, until one day they understand, one those days of eternity, they can understand and say, yes, Lord. That was on earth in the small, limited conditions of our historical life. Now, I am confronted with the depth and the vastness and the unutterable beauty of eternity. No earthly horror can destroy this which is you and the beauty and the harmony of yours. So that this was what I wanted to add to what I said last time concerning the four. But with the four, everything is changed. I have mentioned the way in which man relates to God. 
although God continues to relate to, relate to men with the same total love, which now, from being the joy and exaltation it was, is becoming tragedy. The cross has been planted by man in the garden of Eden. And the Son of God is already crucified. Because he has already accepted total, ultimate solidarity with his creatures to the point of dying of it. There then, to Adam and to Eve, you have eaten this fruit, you shall die. It is often, all too often, understood as a condemnation. You have disobeyed my will, as a punishment, I condemn you to death. It isn't this. What it says to us is that one can be alive only in total communion with God. And they had turned away from this communion and there was no way in which they could be alive with the life of eternity. They could be alive with a sort of continued life. The, the life of their material substance. But they cannot live the full life of the human being. And they shall die. And this is an act of mercy because it will be so atrocious to think that this separation from God would become eternal if it's not broken. This separation is not broken somehow. So that death is an act of grace and of mercy. We will come next time to a few more notions concerning this. I want to speak on the meaning of certain words that one can't see meant one thing in paradise, that is, while God and man were at one, at one in love, and changed their meaning when the fall came. And then we will talk of what happened between Adam and Eve as a result of the fall and what happened to the created world around them. are not a systematic commentary on the beginnings of Genesis. 
want, it's an outpouring of my heart and mind. I share with you what I have perceived in the light of the New Testament and the little I have perceived. So don't take it as teaching. Take it as an attempt of mine to share with you what has gradually accrued in my heart. Take it critically. Do not believe it. Accept it only if it is true for you and in you. The second thing I want to say is, is are there between you, in the midst of you, one or two willing victims to take down these thoughts and mind, type them on paper? Because I want to work on them, and I want one day perhaps to publish them, both in English and in Russian, as a challenge, as a question, as a sharing. So if any one of you can write a line to me about it, and let us see. Shall we not stand in prayer?